If you have your copy of the scripture, would you now take it out and turn with me to that penultimate book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Zechariah. And we'll be considering uh, the last five or six verses in this chapter of God's Word, the first chapter of, of Zechariah. Zechariah, his ministry was to those exiles, that remnant that had returned to the promised land with the purpose of rebuilding the temple of the living God. And they had begun well. They had laid the foundation, but now for many years they had ceased. They had devoted their efforts to rebuilding their own homes and their own fields. And so God raises up these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to exhort and to call the people to continue to resume the work of rebuilding the temple of God, that God may again dwell with his people. And the prophet received uh, well, has, will receive a number of visions, the first of which was of those four horsemen who have patrolled the earth, who have brought back word that all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord intercedes on behalf of the people, asking how long before you return to Jerusalem, how long before you will have mercy again on your covenant people. And then comes a promise. That God will again return to his people. That he has returned to his people. And so these visions, these night visions confirm the word that began Zechariah's ministry. That if you will return to me, I will return to you. To assure the people of God that their efforts to rebuild the temple are not in vain, are not folly. But that God will meet with his people when they seek him. And so I want to consider uh, three things with you tonight, and all of them begin with the letter R, which is also the first letter of my name. Unless I'm on the phone and you think it's Brian. But restoration, verses 16 and 17. Reality, verses 18 to 20. And then recompense, verse 21 and following. Before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help. And his blessing. O great God. In heaven. We thank you that you keep covenant. And we praise you that you. Do not treat us as our. Sins deserve. That your mercies are. New every morning. We thank you of how your people. Your church in the days of Zechariah experienced the truth that your mercies are new every morning. We pray, O God, that we would live in light of your mercy, walking in the light of your face. Speak to us, O Holy Spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. 
And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Amen. Thus far in God's holy inspired and inerrant word. God declares to his people that he has indeed returned to them faithful to his word, and he assures them of his sovereign power to vanquish every foe. And so let's look again at verses 16 and 17, which we considered last month, but let's look at them again, verses 16 and 17. Consider the gracious offer. God confronts his people in these visions with exactly what they need, that his words are sufficient for all that they lack to bring the complete restoration to Israel, which continues to languish in exile, even though a remnant has returned to the land. The people began to rebuild the temple, the emblem of God's presence, the meeting place of God and man under the old covenant. But they ceased working on it years ago. Why rebuild the temple, perhaps they thought? All the expense and the labor But is there any certainty that God will reward our efforts, our backbreaking labor with blessing? Perhaps we too are tempted to think in that way. Why should I go through the expense, the effort of Christian living, spiritual duty? It seems so slow and the payoff is so ephemeral. While the costs of Christian duty, Christian living, of spiritual thinking, those costs are tangible. Forsaking fun, enduring mocking, the risk to your career, the pleasure on which you might miss, the rewards, the promises of God are so intangible, so far off, so much less real, it sometimes seems, than what is immediately confronting us. This is the concern of God. That is the challenge of God's people in every age, isn't it? To understand things rightly. That what seems ephemeral, that what seems afar off is actually the most tangible, the most real possession and inheritance. That's why the Apostle Paul reminds the Romans of the eternal weight of glory that that is waiting for God's people to which this light momentary affliction is not worthy of being compared. So as these people, as we consider these people in Jerusalem, that was 2,400 years ago. 
As we consider these people and their sluggishness to rebuild the temple. Let us not think that we are so different from them. Now, Rick Phillips notes uh, uh, there are a number of crucial elements of salvation that are illustrated here. Uh, Five things that God will do when he saves that we can expect from God when we return to him. Let me give you those five things and we'll explore just a few of them. I'm I'm not going to simply repeat what he says in his commentary because if you want that, you can go buy his commentary. But let let me give those to you. First, we can expect that if we return to God, he will show mercy. Second, that he will dwell with his people. Third, that he will build up his people. Fourth, that he will bless his people with prosperity. And five, that he will vanquish his people's enemies. Let's just explore a couple of those. That God is assuring mercy to his people. Look at verse 16. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Remember how Zechariah's ministry began. Say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me and I will return to you. And what does Zechariah hear? I have returned. And so the first promise that God holds out to those who return to him is mercy. This is a promise that the demoralized remnant needs. A promise that the the chastisement of the Hebrew church That season has ended. Now there are two types of people who make two types of responses to this offer of mercy, aren't there? There are people like the forefathers of the remnant. Their ancestors who acknowledge their sin, but who refuse to give it up. They would put away their false dealings when things got really bad. But when things improved, when there seemed to be hope that they could escape destruction by the armies of Babylon, they would go back to the way they were. Jeremiah records this. Jeremiah 34. It's kind of a long passage. Maybe you want to turn there. Jeremiah 34. He records the fickleness of the Hebrew church in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 34, verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again, they obeyed and set them free. So what had happened there is that the armies of Babylon were approaching the city. And the people suddenly got religion. They looked around and they said, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're violating the law here. We are holding our fellow Hebrews as slaves. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to set them free. We're going to emancipate them. We're not going to hold them as slaves anymore. We're going to make a covenant that we are going to obey God's law. And so they did. But let's but look, they, they obeyed. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took them back, the male and female slaves that they had set free, and they brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I myself... 
made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free his fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. And so you see what happened. When the army of Babylon was bearing down on the city of Jerusalem, they freed their slaves. But when the army withdrew to go deal with another threat, they said, "Uh uh-uh, you're slaves again. They went right back to their sin when the threat was removed. And so there are people in the visible church, there are people near the church in every age who will agree that they are sinful, who will acknowledge they have done what is sinful, but who will not give up their sin who will not make a serious break with sin in order to embrace the mercy of God. Right? Those people, their ancestors in Jerusalem, those 70 or 80 years earlier, saw the mercy of God as the army of Babylon turned back and they made a covenant. But as soon as they had received the mercy, what did they do? They went back to their vomit like a dog. And continue to sin. There are people within the the visible church. Who will not make a serious break with sin. They desire to escape the punishment and consequences of sin. They may modify their behavior. They may restrain and manage their depravity and their corruption for a season. But they will not let go of sin. Sometimes it's a lifestyle of sin. Sometimes it's just a couple of secret sins that they will not turn away from. If that's you, hear these words. John, the apostle, warns us, 1 John 3, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Do you make a practice of sinning? Do you make a practice of of turning from sin when, when it gets dangerous to you? And maybe you persist, maybe you experience the consequences of your sin for a season and people confront you and they chastise you and, and, and they warn you. And you put on pious airs. And you control your corruption for a season. But then when things seem to be going better, there you are, like a dog going back to his vomit. I can illustrate that for you, but I won't. But there's a second type of people. There's a second sort of person. The sinner who is in the grips of his sin and his temptation and his lust, but he yearns to be free. And he or she sees the heinousness of his sin, the ugliness, the offensiveness of his sin, and he desires to embrace the mercy of God in Christ. For such ones, this promise is sweet. God has returned with mercy and compassion and grace. 
And that is where these, these remnant, this remnant is. These returned exiles, that is where they are. This generation has learned from their parents' fate. From their parents' destruction and devastation. And they yearn for restoration with God. But are powerless to achieve it. And so we see, boy, of application, mercy comes first. We cannot have a relationship with God that is built upon our own achievements, our own good intentions, or our own resolve. Mercy comes first, and that is what is offered here. I have returned with mercy. God's mercy opens the door. God is not waiting for us to make the first move. God initiates. Right? He did not wait for them to say, you know what, maybe we ought to just do a little bit of work on the temple now and, and see what happens. No, he tells them, all you must do is return to me and I will return to you. He opens the floodgates of his mercy for them to receive. But now at the end of verse 16 and into verse 17, we see God dwelling with his people. When last we were in this text, we noted that God promised four times in verse 17 to choose Jerusalem. That again, 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 I will choose Jerusalem. Now it is not that God's election is fickle or changeable. But the benefits of God's electing grace will once again be manifested. God's presence will dwell with his people again. And what does God's spirit do when he dwells with his people? He transforms his people. He prospers his people spiritually. He makes us more and more fit for him to dwell with us. We see that foretold here at the end of verse 17 in the, in the language and ideas and terms of the old covenant. That God will again make the cities and towns of Judah prosperous. And all that was prefiguring what he will do for the church, for his people under the new covenant. And ultimately, in the new, new, new heavens and new earth. In the new covenant, God's spirit dwells with his people, the spirit of holiness. And he conforms us to the holiness of Christ, establishing his reign over our hearts. Right? Remember Philippians 2 and verse 12, how he indwells us by his spirit, willing and working according to his pleasure. Or perhaps most clearly, 2 Corinthians 3.18 we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, Rick Phillips notes that the Spirit makes the lives of believers prosperous with good things that will be a blessing to him and to others. But this prosperity is not necessarily money or reputation or recognition or power or approval or worldly success. Rick Phillips says, those who walk with God abound in the prosperity of a holy life. Believers are made rich in loyal friendships, useful service, healthy marriages, strong character. And they enjoy God's fatherly provision to meet all their needs. God enriches his people as they are conformed to the likeness of Christ. Not with the passing, fleeting, destructive treasures of this life, but with the things that are truly enriching, things that promote peace, blessedness, lasting happiness. 
and joy. Think, perhaps, for a moment, how the children of Zion have these solid joys and lasting treasures. And how the the treasures of the children of Zion, how they compare with the world's treasures. Fame is, is fleeting. I watched the Flintstones movie with my children uh, this, uh, this weekend. And I didn't know, I, I, I'd seen it when I was their age. I didn't know that Elizabeth Taylor was in the Flintstones movie. And you think back to the career of Elizabeth Taylor and all the great films in which she had a starring role during the golden age of cinema. And there at the end of her career, she's in The Flintstones. Fame is fleeting, isn't it? Money, money. Generally, riches only increase stress, don't they? As you, as you struggle to grow and to protect it. Beauty passes away. But godly friendships A godly marriage, godly character yields rewards that do not fade. Let me ask you then, have you embraced the mercy of God that he offers here? Have you come to him because of the mercy he promises? Have you turned from your sins and received his mercy? So a restoration, now reality, verses 18 to 20. That's what these visions are doing, by the way. They're they're showing Zechariah what is really real. Because what he sees isn't all that there is. That first vision seemed to include four horsemen. These were the scouts of the Lord of hosts who patrolled the whole earth and found the nations at rest. And that first vision was one that reflected the despair of the people of God. The the proud adversaries of the Hebrew church were at rest and God's horsemen are there hidden in a glen or a ravine. Now remember, this vision isn't intended to be taken literally. God does not need scouts to show him what is happening. God knows what is happening. But Zechariah was being shown the heavenly realities in the terms and images of his own day to increase the vividness of the truth. God is comprehensively aware of all that transpires on earth. God has seen the affliction of his people and the ease of his enemies. This vision is an appropriate successor to the first vision. Now that the scouts of the Lord of hosts have reported in, the great might of the Lord of hosts is brought to bear for the glory and vindication of his people. And so the four horns. Now these horns have been variously interpreted. But the best interpretation is to see these horns as emblematic of power. That Southern Presbyterian, well actually was born in Pennsylvania, but he, uh, he got religion and moved south. Uh, T.V. Moore uh, said, to lift up the horn was to be proud of conscious strength. 
That's what these horns are. That's how horns function in the prophets. Perhaps Jeremiah 48, 25. For, for nations with goats and rams and cows all over the place, the animal with the largest horns was what? The most powerful. And so a horn becomes synonymous with military prowess. This vision aims to confirm what God has promised to his people. Both in the opening sermon of Zechariah and then in the first vision. The enemies of God's people were at ease. But not for long. Zechariah surely recognizes these are horns, but he doesn't understand the meaning Now, it could be a reference to an idolatrous altar, right? Altars typically had horns on it too. But these four horns, we are told, represent all the enemies of the people of God. Apparently going far back into history. He speaks of Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel. Going back all the way to the oppression of the Egyptians, to the Persians, to the Samaritans, and to the present day. Some commentators, especially the Jewish ones, try to identify each of the four horns with a specific kingdom that has risen up against the Hebrew church or with the powers of of Daniel, Babylon and Persia, Greece and Rome. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is the four points on the compass, so to speak, that the enemies of God's people comprehensively have enveloped them. And by the way, that seems to be, you know, when I, when I read that in the commentators, I thought, well, how do we know that the Hebrew compass had four points on it? I mean, my compass does. Actually, my son's compass. I don't have a compass. But that seems to be how the, the number four is functioning in Zechariah. There are four winds and four chariots and four horsemen and four horns. And later, four smiths or hammers. God's people are portrayed here as under assault from every direction by every possible enemy. They have raged against God's people. And look, verse 19, they have scattered them. And I want to note one thing by way of application before we move on. Zechariah asks for understanding. When the prophet encounters something he doesn't understand, he asks for clarification. And that is so important for us and for our age. Now, obviously, we, unlike Zechariah, do not have an angel attending us, or as Calvin notes, at least in the visible form. But if we seek spiritual understanding, we too must make use of the means of grace available to us. God promises, doesn't he promise, to give us a spirit of understanding and wisdom if we ask? God uses the preaching of the word and the sacraments to lead us to himself. We should make use of such means. Next Lord's Day evening as we come to the table, make use of that means. Calvin warns us, if we neglect the helps which God affords us, which are the word, sacraments, and prayer ordinarily, How can we expect to comprehend obscure and difficult scriptures if we don't make use of those ordinary means of grace regularly and steadily? Zechariah asked for help. Christian, you too, ask for help and seek help where it may be found in the word, sacraments, and prayer. Well, now let's look. uh, Verse 21, recompense. 
recompense. Four craftsmen appear. Now, historically, these have been translated as smiths or carpenters. Some sort of specific tradesman. But the word is more generic in in the Hebrew. It's, It's craftsman. And the point is not the identity of these four craftsmen, but what they have come to do. T.V. Moore puts it this way. Their office was to break the horns in pieces. These craftsmen, they have one tool, haven't they? And it's, it's not a cutting tool. It's not a very versatile tool. It's a hammer. That is what a craftsman wields. Hammers are, are good for pretty much two things. Hammering nails, right? And breaking things. Right? You, you, give your, you give your five-year-old a hammer and you, you set him to work in the kitchen and what's going to happen? You're not going to have any dishes, right? We should not overlook the fact that while there were four horns, the number of these hammer-wielding craftsmen is also four. Sufficient and to coincide with exactly the need. T.V. Moore again says, For every enemy, there was an antagonizing instrument to counteract it, already provided by God. Hence, on all sides there grew enemies to oppose the erection of the temple and the completion of the city. There was provided by God, says T.V. Moore, a neutralizing and counteracting power adequate to destroy them all. And that is the task of the craftsman. The prophet inquires, what are they to do? These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head, says the Lord. In the ancient Near East, it was common for a vanquished enemy to lie prostrate on the ground and the conqueror would place his feet on the head of the vanquished people. Symbolic of total victory and total submission. The victory of the nations over Judah was complete. The Hebrew church was subjected to foreign, to pagan foes. And the reason, of course, was their covenant breaking, their sin, their rebellion. They had received the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. They had the outward marks of belonging to the people of God, but they did not embrace those promises, those covenant privileges, those covenant responsibilities by faith. And so God sent enemies against his people and carried them off into exile where they died. But a remnant of their children have returned. And so here is a reminder for all of us, but especially you covenant children, those of you who have received the mark of baptism, but who have not yet professed faith in Christ. It is not enough, children, that your parents believe. It is not enough that you simply come to morning worship and and evening worship and that you come to Sunday school. It is not enough. You must turn to Christ. You, children, you must see your sinfulness. You must come to realize your need of God's mercy. That you, because you are a sinner, because you cannot live right, that you cannot behave enough, 
that you cannot do as God requires. You, children, must come to Christ yourself. Will you come to Christ? Will you meet him where he promises to meet you? Come to him and receive his mercy. These horns, these worldly powers seem to triumph over God's people. But what the Lord shows Zechariah is they'll be broken in pieces by the craftsmen with their hammers. It's fitting that craftsmen are armed with hammers, isn't it? The great task ahead of the Hebrew church is the rebuilding of the temple. And so perhaps to suggest to them that they will overcome every adversary. And the way in which they will overcome every adversary is by building the temple. But of course, it isn't their own efforts at rebuilding the temple that defeat their adversaries. But it's the God who dwells in that temple who gives them victory. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the great king, the anointed of the Lord, who comes with a rod of iron to break in pieces all those who oppose his kingdom. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who offers blessing and peace to all those who take refuge in him. And so the angel, the Lord, shows the prophet the great comfort that they should take, that the whole people of God should take. T.V. Moore, again, he says, the prophet sees that for every horn, for every enemy, there's a craftsman to beat it down. Take comfort that the church of the living God may be surrounded on every side by enemies. And she will be until the last enemy is destroyed. But the church will never perish. For he who is with the church is greater than all who are against her. So consider a way of application. Whatever troubles, whatever assaults are arrayed against the church, God has a remedy in his hand. It may be that the church will be in a miserable condition, humbled and trampled, the Lord's people seeming to perish in great numbers. But not a one can perish, can be plucked out of his hand. For the church herself will continue, will endure, and will look in triumph on all her enemies. Because the Lord himself will crush his enemies and make them a footstool for his feet. Christian, if you are in Christ, he will conquer all His and your enemies. Have you taken refuge in him? Is Christ, he who walks between the golden lampstand, is he your hope? Take refuge in him. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that you have provided your beloved son, our savior, that he would dwell with his people. Conform us to his likeness, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.